This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I have created this life. Filled it with rules. Now seems the time to break one. With First Reformed and The Card Counter, director Paul Schrader made a pair of films about characters confronting moral failure. The so-called Man in a Room trilogy continues with Master Gardener, starring Joel Edgerton. We've got a review, plus thoughts on the new Blackberry and Chris Marker's Sans Soleil. It's all ahead. How'd you get a new Blackberry? On Film Spotted. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're not reviewing it this week, Josh, but as Fast and Furious completists and generally fans of the series, we did want to acknowledge that, is it Fast X or Fast 10? I don't know what I should call it. It comes out this weekend. I mean, Fast X sounds like something Dom would say rather than Fast 10, so let's go with that. I do live my life a quarter mile at a time. Easily the most creative movie titling of any franchise, Fast X, I'm going to stick with X, was preceded by the minimalist F9 in 2021, the series ending implying F8, the fate of the Furious in 2017, and the not-so-fast just Furious 7 in 2015. That's when we jumped on the rocket-fueled Fast and Furious bandwagon. We have, on multiple occasions, revisited our top five Fast and Furious moments from 2015, but... We're taking a pass this time, at least <laughs> on this spare show. the listeners. <laughs> we are. We're sensing that the enthusiasm for this film is a little bit diminished from previous installments. Our producer felt the same way. Sam put out on Twitter, I'm sensing less enthusiasm for Fast X than previous installments. Am I wrong? So far, and we know this is a bit of an echo chamber. These are Sam's followers. 68% said, you're not wrong. Nobody really seems to care. 26% actually said, is Fast X the car one? <laughs> I, I don't know what you're saying about Sam's followers there, but yes. They're not motorheads. For the most part. They're not gearheads, Josh. Okay, okay. Fair That's enough. That's what I'm suggesting. Pr- probably true. Um, yeah, I think this backs up our sensibility, our senses about this. And boy, now that you did point out we're completists, though, Adam. Mm-hmm. We will be catching up with this at some point. We'll you know to. I can't. I know you Once can't. I'm this far in, I'm 643 films into the MCU and I can't let it go. So you know I'm going to complete this before the year is out. This is one way and maybe the only way you're more neurotic than me. I think I could live <laughs> in bliss the rest of my life, never having seen a new 
Fast and Furious movie, but I know you can't miss it. I'll get there. Later in the show, I will have some quick thoughts on the new film, Blackberry, that's playing in limited release, plus the fifth movie in our Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon, Chris Marker's Sans Soleil. First, our brief reminder that you listeners can help us reach new listeners just by leaving a rating or a positive review of the show. Thanks to Apple Podcast users VSO212, Broken Tugboat, and I'm underscore inspired exclamation point. I wanted to differentiate from, you know, I'm I'm underscore inspired. inspired question mark. All three of them left us reviews, and I'm Inspired also shared these kind words. By the time I discovered film spotting, I had drifted so far from my filmmaker roots, where I was a one-time documentary filmmaker and feature film writer, that I was only really devouring popcorn mainstream fare with my kids. But I soon found myself waiting eagerly for my Friday fix of film obsessives. I have since subscribed to the Film Spotting family and archive. Thank you. And on long drives across the Australian countryside filming for clients, I have found myself devouring gems from the archives hour after hour. The banter between Adam and Josh, plus their usual brigade of guests, has led me to rediscover my more expansive tastes in cinema. I have discovered many of my own blind spots and expanded my Blu-ray and 4K collection in the process. Thank you guys from Melbourne, Australia. Thank you so much. I'm inspired. Please do share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We would greatly appreciate that. All right. Before we let that review make us feel too good about ourselves, Adam, let's delve into the guilt and punishment of Paul Schrader's master gardener. The Nandina is a species of flowering plant native to Eastern Asia. The smell at certain times of the year gives you a real buzz. Like the buzz you get just before pulling the trigger. I have a favor to ask. What is it? My grandniece. I would like you to take her home as an apprentice. She dropped out of school and then she ended up in a bad crowd. You'll learn how to garden. Are you satisfied with the life that you have? Why would you ask that? Talking to IndieWire last September for a feature that followed Master Gardener's premiere at Venice, Paul Schrader confessed that while making it, he thought he was going to die. He woke up in New Orleans one day having difficulty breathing and seeing out of his left eye, but he had only four days of shooting left. So what did he do? He got out of bed and went to the set. I knew if I called 911, those bastards would never let me out of the hospital, and the film would not be finished, Schrader said. So I lay there in bed and said, well, maybe I won't wake up tomorrow. But would I rather not wake up tomorrow or wake up in the hospital room knowing I can't finish my film? And so I made my decision. It's a fitting anecdote considering that, among other things, the three characters who inhabit Schrader's Man in a Room trilogy all share, among other symptoms, an unhealthy commitment to their work. Ethan Hawke's Pastor Toller is virtually always in uniform in First Reformed, while Oscar Isaac leads a steady but ascetic life as a gambler in the card counter. What separates Blackjack from other games is that it's based on dependent events, meaning past affects the probability in the future, Isaac's William Tell explains, and oh, does Tell have a past. So does Joel Edgerton's Narvel Roth a former murdering neo-Nazi who has created a peaceful new life as the horticulturalist for a luxurious southern estate owned by Sigourney Weaver's Mrs. Haverhill. 
Incidentally, I hope I'm not the only one struck by some of the film's cheeky name choices. This being a Schrader film, of course he calls the estate Gracewood, and Weaver's Mrs. Haverhill will have her hill and anything else she wants. Thank you very much. Unlike Toller and Tell, Roth's profession genuinely seems to offer him pleasure, or at least the illusion of order and control, but that illusion becomes more tenuous when Mrs. Haverhill's great-niece, Maya, played by Contessa Swindell, arrives as a new apprentice. Josh, you recently conducted a movie club discussion about faith and fanaticism in First Reformed, and in your card counter review admitted that you were pretty forgiving of how thickly Schrader lays on the theology. Pre-downtown living back in the burbs, you were a man who enjoyed tending to his garden. And no, that's not a metaphor. You did work in your garden. I think that's where the similarities between you and Narvel Roth begin and end. Where do you see Roth fitting into Schrader's continuum of haunted men? And how forgiving are you of Schrader's test of our willingness to forgive him? Yeah, he knows a lot more about soil than I ever did. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, do you really get in there um, and smell it? Do you get your I nose didn't, dirty? I didn't do the soil huffing, which may explain some of our less successful yeah, garden beds, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, you know, obviously that was an interesting element of the film for me. I knew going in that Schrader was going to use this in completely metaphorical terms. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of, you know, gardening know-how and scientific information, but it is on that metaphorical level you've already nicely reference that it mostly works. And boy, your anecdote at the beginning about Schrader's health while finishing up the filming for this makes me really wish I liked Master Gardner a whole lot more. <laughs> I mean, he is willing to suffer for oh his Oh my art. gosh, I feel terrible the now. I mean, sacrifice, Josh. For the record, I mixed a negative on this movie. It's, it's, <laughs> but you hear something like that and it's, you know, I want that to be the story for First Reformed, his masterpiece, right? Uh, anyway, back to your question. You know, it's, it's a tough one for me because I did not connect with Edgerton's performance or this character nearly as much as I did the other two. And I'm still trying to work out if that's a matter of performance or screenplay or direction. Uh, Edgerton is an actor, you know, I've long admired. And I think, you know, couple of Jeff Nichols productions, in particular Midnight Special, but one that's been largely forgotten, unfortunately, I think, loving, opposite Ruth Nega. He is just wonderful mm -hmm. in, in a very underplayed, soft-spoken performance. So it's not an Edgerton thing for me, but there's definitely an Edgerton thing in this movie for me. And your question helps me frame that because I've seen how Oscar Isaac has managed this particular type of man so well in The Card Counter, which I liked a little bit better than this. And, of course, Ethan Hawke gave us maybe the definitive one. You could argue as screenwriter Travis Bickle is the definitive one for Scorsese's picture. But in terms of Schrader directed, I think that Hawke's Ernst Toller is the definitive performance of this particular type of man for Schrader. So it, there's a faltering there in that line for me that I'm still, as you can see, trying to process. As far as your other question related question in terms of how far are we willing to go in terms of you know forgiving a sinner of their past guilt i think that's one of the more fascinating things about these last two pictures in particular mm -hmm. i don't know that it's as play in quite as much in first reformed 
as it is here. And it relates to what I did like about Master Gardener in this trilogy as a whole. It's really clarified for me that, yes, there are men in a room. There are men writing in their diaries, you know, with one lamp on and one drink on their table. And we get to hear their thoughts. But they're also all three men reckoning with massive American sins. And I feel like that's what Schrader is after in this recent batch of films. And we can go through these in more depth, but basically, you know, it's it's not talked about as much as the faith element, I think, for First Reform, but that's a movie that's really wrestling with the environmental degradation that a prosperous na- nation has caused. And then you look at the card counter and it's American warmongering at large, I think, is the subject there. The specific contest is Abu Ghraib and Oscar mm-hmm. Isaac's character's involvement there. Master Gardner, you mentioned it when you talked about Edgerton's character's background. This one's taking on maybe, you know, America's original sin, original white sin. supremacy. Yeah, slavery. And this all so takes place I, on a former plantation. That's clear. Exactly. And and even little touches like, you know, Roth's he lives on this plantation, this estate that he also works on. I think he might live in former quarters that enslaved lived in. Probably. And, you know, you counter that with the mansion that Weaver's mistress lives in. These are all interesting ideas. I don't know that they are executed as well here as they are in the other two films. I don't know that it's because Roth has committed a greater sin that I can't get behind. The general idea of Mm -hmm. um, how far can grace extend is one that has bedeviled Schrader across his career. And I think it's one of his strongest exploratory themes. And that here is not the issue. I think grace can extend to someone like Roth. But in the exploration of that idea, things are a little awkward here. Um, I think taking on this original sin of America, maybe Schrader found himself in in fields where he's not quite as adept to speak to. Well, how about the formality as well and the structure surrounding who even can enter the house? You have to have a certain type of invitation. You have to be wearing a certain type of clothes. Otherwise, you're going to sit on the porch with the porch dog. Porch dog is the dog's name. That's the dog's name. Exactly. This film for me is my least favorite of the trilogy. And I will say that I appreciate both Hawks and Isaac's performances more. I do think Isaac is more naturally charismatic. And that character is even though charismatic is not a word I would really use to describe William Tell. But unlike you, I didn't have any issues with Edgerton's performance. In fact, I I quite liked it. I thought his stillness made him elusive and enigmatic. And I understood why people were drawn to him. And the sinister side of his soul that we come to know has to be there. That part of him that was clearly in him before, it doesn't just feel like something that he's tamping down or that he is successfully hidden, but he can't wait to unleash it. Narvel Roth may be a character he created, but it really seems like who he is now. He actually does seem to be reborn. That's the way Edgerton plays him, which I do think is a bolder choice for the character. And I think a bolder choice for, for Schrader, because that makes that question about how willing we are to forgive him or sympathize with him. I think that makes it even tougher. It'd be easier to dismiss him if we thought he was play acting. And I never got that sense with Edgerton, but I do want to get into a few things that you started to get into. I like this film more than you. 
and taken as a standalone film, separate from my experiences with the previous two, I think I would still go for Master Gardener because there's just something about Schrader's slow burning, button pushing, but totally sincere approach to these redemption stories that I find compelling. That said, I can admit that walking the path with these characters and completing this journey was a major part of the reward for me this time. Gardner concludes a trilogy in which the protagonists have gotten increasingly unsympathetic and decreasingly redeemable, yet the sly, subversive Schrader also made this third piece the most hopeful. And we'll try to unpack that a little bit. It sounds like that may be an aspect that didn't work for you about this film. But when I think about Pastor Toller in First Reform, he's disillusioned and he's despairing, but there's little to dislike about him. If anything, his sins are more sins of omission, not sins of commission, which is decidedly not the case, as I mentioned earlier, with Oscar Isaac's gambler. He's punishing himself for participating in these human rights violations in torture, nor is it the case with Narvel. And Tell did terrible things, but you can rationalize them if you're so inclined. It was during the chaos of war. He seemed like he was probably once a good soldier. He's suffering from PTSD. You can't rationalize Narvel's sins. We see the neo-Nazi tattoos. We see him kill people. We understand the hate that was very present in his heart. And for as stoic as he is, as I also mentioned, he seems to take some pleasure in his work and is living this relatively cozy life at Gracewood. He's not punishing himself the way Tell is, which should make him less likable, should make him less redeemable because he doesn't seem to be carrying that guilt. Or again, he's not punishing himself for carrying that guilt. And yet Schrader comes along and says, yeah, this is the guy I'm going to offer love and forgiveness to. And that that button pushing, that provocativeness was enough for me, Josh. Yeah. And on the page, everything you're talking about, I love. Uh, for the record, you know, my issue wasn't that um, Roth is the bigger sinner of the three. Sure. I get that. Um, so, yeah, just, yeah, I know you know that, but just, just kind of clarifying it. Um, I think it's the way that was carried out for me. And maybe a lot of it has to do with this central relationship that the movie really begins to anchor itself around between Roth and Maya. And I just didn't believe a moment between those two. It's, it, it was, it's one of those cases where the dialogue is being aimed at the audience rather than the characters directing it at each other. The, these two were such obvious symbols to me from the very moment they were introduced, how they mostly interacted with each other. I think when we get to the second half and there are sequences outside of the estate, there are some that work better than others where you see, and I think this is the, you know, this is the talent of Edgerton and Swindell being able to draw up characters from what has been on the page and give us some authentic moments, but they're few and far between for me. I, I feel that they're just both envisioned and employed as such heavy symbols. And maybe the main sequence I can point to is a love scene that is so preoccupied with the use of his tattoos, which are just physical expressions of hate, and her naked body as a physical expression of love, that the movie didn't have any time for them as actual believable characters who would be together 
interacting in that way in that moment. They absolutely had to act that way, as I said, because this movie, to get to those themes you're talking about, which are interesting and provocative and well worth exploring, but it had to get to that moment so that she could be, so her naked love could conquer his tattooed hate, basically. That was the point of that scene. It's the point of their relationship and nothing else about it really registered. I'm not saying they couldn't represent that, but they had to represent that after they registered for me as people first. And I just don't think it ever got there. This this somewhat felt to me like a movie that was a little unformed, you know, an, another pass at the script. Um, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it just, it seemed unfinished in some of these ways or even another rehearsal with, with the, the actors to kind of nail down exactly how these characters are going to interact as believable people in the real world and then let the symbolism grow from that. Yeah. I think we see it differently, obviously, in that I understand where you're coming from, but to suggest that that scene is supposed to suggest conquering, I think implies something too neat and tidy that's happening on screen that I, I didn't feel was occurring on screen. And I think that's probably because I didn't see those characters as overtly symbolic as you did. It's definitely there. We understand what they're standing in for. We just talked about how this whole movie is ultimately about the original sin of slavery. So you have to see those characters within that paradigm. But I guess for me, Josh, one difference between the two of us is I didn't see the dialogue or a lot of their exchanges as distinct from moments I saw between Tiffany Haddish and Oscar Isaac in the card counter or the well, characters in that in wasn't a strength form. for me in the card counter either. I'll say, right. So uh, I'm seeing these, these films as a piece and that didn't take me by surprise here. In fact, I guess I expected it on some level. I saw it by myself. So I don't know what the experience was like in a theater, but I remember watching the card counter in the theater and hearing you may recall this as well. I think we saw it together. I remember hearing people snickering at certain moments and certain lines at things they perceived to be awkward. And Schrader's just very comfortable living in that space. I think he's aware those moments are awkward and he doesn't care. And I guess I'm okay with that. I think there were moments just like that in this film as well, but not enough to ever take me out of the film or make it seem like what Schrader was trying to do. This comes back to me saying, and I don't know that you disagree with me on this. I think you probably agree, especially based on your feelings about the other two films. I do think as much as he likes to be the provocateur, he is absolutely earnest in the ideas he wants to explore here and the things he wants to challenge. Oh, absolutely. Right. So it, it never for me feels like he's, he's just trying to get everyone riled up, even if his films can sometimes have that effect. And I guess the idea of them being unfinished and unformed or this film feeling unfinished and unformed doesn't resonate with me again, because it just feels like it's too much of a piece with its predecessors. And when you say that, it makes me think of something that feels maybe a little hastily constructed and there's just nothing hasty about this film. And there's nothing that came across to me as anything, but totally intentional. I feel like this movie plays out exactly the way my perception is exactly the way Schrader not only needed the film to, but needed this this trilogy to. And as you said very well, this whole series is about these characters and their sins being stand-ins for our country's sins, sins that may 
predate the current time we're living in, but feel more prevalent and more visceral than ever. And I think all three of these movies are going to be looked back on in 10, 20, 30, 50 years as movies that feel era defining. So I know you don't want to be dismissive, but I can't be as dismissive as you are about it because of that weight to them. Yeah, as a project, you know, it's incredibly impressive in execution. I wished, you know, he just knocked all three of them out of the park. There's just such a gap for me between these two and First Reformed. I do want to get to a couple of things that I did like about it, though. And um, the score by Devontae Hines, I thought, was really interesting in its kind of the synth inflections it had because having just revisited and watched for the first time a couple Schrader films um, for that thing Christian movie club thing you mentioned, uh, Hardcore and uh, a couple of others, you know, it put me back in that era of his earlier 80s type films. And I thought that was a nice touch and certainly purposeful to bring that to mind. And I definitely wanted to get your impression, and we probably shouldn't spoil it, but there's this burst of expressionism Mm -hmm. that we get. And for those who have seen first reformed, this is the floating through space sequence. You know, it's, it's um, different from that, obviously distinct from that. And in terms of the transcendental style that Schrader wrote a book about that we talked to him about when he came on the show a couple of years ago, this is his, this is his big flourish Mm -hmm. um, after the stayed composed pacing that these transcendental films otherwise have. And then often, not always, but often they'll bring this moment of expressionism that hits the harder because of the staidness we've been experiencing. This one, I was waiting for it. Uh, I, I was, <laughs> I was rooting for it is what I want to say. And I, for me, I think it's probably one of those snicker moments that an audience might respond to I in terms not. of how the characters interact with the moment. I, I loved the idea behind the visuals. Again, it's it's a matter of execution with this film. I, I think there's a, so much richness, potential richness here. And what we're left with, though, in the execution is a little bit of awkwardness. It sounds like I'm assuming it worked better for you as well, that element. It did. But part of why it worked, like a lot of the things I'm talking about, comes back to how it does fit within this trilogy. We've touched on a lot of these, but these films have many connections, many connections between the characters. Yes, the the man in a room, specifically often at a desk, writing in a journal, expressing their inner angst and sometimes aspirations and joys. We have these tales of punishment and, and redemption, but we do get in all three these flourishes, these surprising flourishes. And I was going to say they're all sort of magically real. It's even more out there, supernatural, in First Reformed. In The Card Counter, it's a flourish that's completely grounded. It's not magically real at all. It may feel magical, but they're at a real place with real surroundings and real lights, but it's a moment that seems so out of time and out of touch with these characters, such an escape that here's where it feels magically real, even though it isn't. This is one where something unnatural or surreal is happening with these two characters. And it, it kind of splits the difference a little bit, (laughs) you know, it's, it's something fundamentally that's happening. They're in a vehicle that 
that is grounded in reality, but what they're experiencing is something that I think we are obviously meant to interpret as figurative. And it was something I found moving, but I think I found it moving partly because I thought it was fascinating how Schrader applied that flourish to this film. And that's, that's one, one departure in terms of these characters, not a departure from the series, but a departure for these characters, this escape from the everyday. Another departure from the series that I like about this film, and here's another moment we can't spoil, but the previous two films are very much about and leading towards violence. At some point, we we get that sense. We know it's inevitable. It's going to erupt, and it provides some closure no matter how unsettlingly it does so. And the violence here, because there is violence, it feels inevitable with this film as well, but it is absolutely a different type of violence. The dynamic between the characters and the way the masculine figure in this scene carries out the violence is nothing like it is in the previous two films and in fact is more keeping with that hopefulness I suggested that we see here in this movie. So you do, so you mentioned that a couple of times, you do find this much more hopeful than even the card counter, huh? Well, I keep thinking about what I recall as the ending of the card counter. And I don't know that with the violence we see carried out, I can look at it as something that is hopeful. Mm. Now, maybe That's you, fair. maybe you have revisited it more recently than I have. And I'm forgetting something. When I look back on those films and I compare it to the final shots, the final moments of this film, the final exchanges between these two characters and the suggestion of the possibility that's contained in that, that's that's really what intrigues me most about this film is looking at it in relation to those other films and seeing how Schrader, as I said earlier, has managed to make a movie where I fundamentally dislike the character more and dislike is too little of a word. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I find him, of all of these characters, the one who you have to work the hardest to empathize with and define redeemable. And yet, by the end, there's there's almost something sweetly serene about it. And maybe that feels false to some viewers like you, Josh. And to me, that's, I'll use the P word again, that's provocative in in the right way for me. Well, and, and what's interesting, of course, is, you know, in some way you could describe the ending of First Reformed, which is absolutely grim, but if you follow it to its conclusion and its mm-hmm. spiritual conclusion in some ways, it could be argued it's the most hopeful. It extends that grace the furthest it could possibly go Interesting. to its main character, um, even though I agree with you, he's the character we could relate with the most in, in a lot of ways. So yeah, these are three movies, you know, it's... it's um, Definitely should all be taken and viewed. To your point, I think you could watch Master Gardener and obvious and yes, come away with your own conclusions and and possibly appreciate it on its own. But yeah, these three do need to be taken together and considered the way they speak to each other. And as we've been discussing, you know, speak to these larger mm-hmm. national sins that I really think essentially is what Schrader is uh, is after is digging after here. Master Gardener is out in limited release now. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on social. I'm at filmspotting. Josh is at Larson on Film. 
What can I do for you? Okay, picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. There is a free wireless internet signal all across North America and nobody has figured out how to use it. It's like the force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. That's from the trailer for BlackBerry, which is currently playing in limited release. It's the story of the ubiquitous early 2000s device, which, yes, it was like a phone and an email machine all in one. But it did go on to lose the smartphone war to Apple and Android. The film is directed by Canadian filmmaker and actor Matt Johnson, who made 2016's Operation Avalanche as well as 2013's The Dirties. And, you know, you might think this is another Silicon Valley story. Well, no, it's worth noting that like the film's director, the BlackBerry has its origins in Canada, something I just learned in our script. Thanks to producer Sam. Adam, (laughs) you caught up with BlackBerry. Yeah. The main thing I want to know is, yeah, tell me what you thought of the movie, but do you still have a BlackBerry? (laughs) I actually do still have a BlackBerry. I don't know that it works, but I just asked Sarah about that the other day. I said, I really kind of wish I'd hung on to one of those just as a memento of the time. Maybe it'll have value at some point down the road. And she said, oh, yeah, I've still got one. I kept one. It's in our desk drawer, one of our desk drawers somewhere. Yeah, I was was a BlackBerry guy. Mm. I was one of the guys that... Jay Baruchel's character, the co-CEO, the co-founder of BlackBerry, one of the guys he describes in the movie as the real followers of BlackBerry. They love the tactile nature of it, the click Mm -hmm. of the buttons, the the two thumbs. Getting stuff done. All of my coworkers, colleagues, friends had made the jump. They made the jump to the iPhone. And I was like, how is that going to work? Typing on a screen? I got to feel the keys. And I resisted. (laughs) And then, of course... You move to the iPhone and after about a week, you're like, why did I, why Mm. did I fight this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But you mentioned that it's a Canadian set film and I don't know that that really manifests itself in any stereotypical ways. I mean, it's not like we have a bunch of characters who are overly nice and say sorry all the time. Hockey maybe plays a major role and yeah, actually Hockey does play a major role. You probably don't remember this, Josh, but I do. The co-CEO, Jim Balsillie, who's played by Glenn Howerton in the film, he famously tried to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins and move them to Hamilton, Ontario and make them the Hamilton Penguins. Things did not play out well with Gary Bettman and the NHL, which you actually do see portrayed in the movie. And the fact that it's a Waterloo, Ontario-based company certainly does add to the overall mystique of this group of plucky, unorganized, naively optimistic upstarts who just want to design something that they think will be revolutionary. And of course, their meteoric rise and their equally meteoric fall. I mentioned Howerton because there's a lot of buzz surrounding his performance. You probably even picked up on some of it, especially coming out of BlackBerry playing at the Chicago Critics Film Festival in the past couple of weeks. He's best known for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and AP Bio. I didn't see either of those. So he's someone I'm familiar with, but don't really know from any screen performances. And they refer to him here. You hear it in the trailer. They refer to him as a shark in the business sense. Howerton plays Balsillie like an actual shark, perpetually on the hunt, dead-eyed and dispassionate. It's such a good, fun performance. But the, the contrasting worldviews and personalities 
and the wants of this main trio, that's actually the core of the movie. I mentioned Jay Baruchel. He's the co-founder, Mike Lazaridis. The director, Matthew Johnson, is the other co-founder, Douglas Freegan. And we heard that Star Wars line from the trailer. That's funny. It's funny in the movie because when Freegan says it to Balsali, we've gotten to know him for all of five minutes. And it's immediately clear that not only is he not the type of guy who has never seen Star Wars, he has aggressively never seen Star Wars. <laughs> he associates a movie like that with guys like the two he's, he's speaking to. He even says a couple times he calls Freegan a goof. He likes to call people goofs. He's this very serious businessman who's all about getting things done. They're all about being goofy and wasting time. What he's really like, though, is Darth Vader. What Balsali's like is Darth Vader. He is relentlessly, ruthlessly, and humorlessly seeking power. He's almost always that I remember him wearing a dark suit. He represents the dark side. Without him, there's almost certainly no Blackberry. It doesn't become a phenomenon. There's no movie made about it, but all you have to do for that success is completely give away your soul to him. And I'll continue the analogy here, Josh. Freegan, if I have to continue it, he's Obi-Wan. He's the antithesis of Balsali and everything he stands for. And then caught in the middle is Lazaridis. He's our Luke Skywalker, pure of heart, really good at fixing power converters. And the movie is really about whether or not he will be corrupted or whether or not he will... He will stick with the force. Blackberry's what I wanted Air to be mm. with a much better utilized soundtrack, too. Obviously, very different movies, especially considering the trajectories of Nike and Blackberry. But I think the, the director, Johnson, does something pretty bold here that I'm still weighing whether it was totally intentional from the start. I think it was. Or if it's how the film maybe came together in the editing room. And that's it's very much a procedural with that office style cinema verite camera. And it focuses almost exclusively on action. What the actions of these men tell us about their character, their desires, their conflicts. There's no scene that I can recall in the movie where any of these characters sit in a room or a bar or whatever and convey their innermost thoughts and feelings. And nobody here is going to wax poetic about the power of, marketing like we get in air. We just see action and consequences. The building up of BlackBerry, the fall of BlackBerry. The, the consequence of that is, as a viewer, when the business does take a turn and compromises start to get made, I did feel a little detached. I maybe didn't feel the full weight of it because to some extent, I wasn't sure I felt like I knew who Mike was. And he's the one who undergoes the most change. But then Johnson shows us who Mike is. He's the guy who two minutes before the biggest meeting of his life, this is the scene we heard, the Star Wars clip. Before this meeting, he is determined, even though they're not prepared, he's determined to fix the buzz that's coming from an intercom that isn't even his. Because that's, that's what his nature is. He's the guy who fixes things. He's the guy who makes things, who, who does things the way they should be done, the right way. That's the arc we watch unfold in this movie. And I came ultimately to decide, Josh, I didn't need to be told anything more. I certainly didn't need him telling me anything more. I just needed to see what, what he did, the choices that he made. And that's something that did stand out for me about Blackberry. Yeah, it's interesting sometimes how a, a similar film in terms of setting or context done slightly differently can make you appreciate 
what an earlier film maybe got wrong a little bit. I have yet to see both of these, so can't speak to that myself, but it sounds like a a revealing distinction. Yeah, you should definitely see Blackberry. It's currently playing in limited release. If you see it, let us know what you thought. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week, we're going to do this, despite the fact that we both have some catching up to do, and there are maybe one or two titles that we may not have a chance to see that we'd like to see before we make our list of the top five films of the year so far, but we're getting to the end of May. We're turning full-blown into summer, Josh, and whenever we do one of these shows, we like to have our special guest, Michael Phillips, join us for that. I can't wait for that. You were lucky enough to have Michael on while I was away at spring break. It's been a while for me, so it's always fun to have Michael on. And yeah, between the three of us, hopefully get a nice roundup of the best of the year so far. You're right, though. I've got at least two titles for sure I've circled. I'm going to catch up with before I finalize my list. I feel good about, I think I've got maybe two or three, feel pretty good about having those on there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes it could be a challenge at the midpoint of the year to to get a list that you feel like is really top five worthy. We'll do our best. Yeah. And all I can say right now is I have one title that is a lock for my top five, but only one. Listeners can probably guess if they've been religiously listening to the show this year, which movie that will be. It will not be the one that our producer, Sam Van Hallgren, picked and talked about in the Film Spotting newsletter this week, John Wick Chapter 4. Yeah, you you were a little upset about all the John Wick love. <laughs> and I can probably I thought Sam say, was kidding. Oh, I come did, on now. I, I genuinely thought he was kidding the first time he mentioned it. I'm, I'm moving ever closer to saying it's the best in the franchise. Okay. John Wick 4, best in the franchise. And now you're pushing me into putting it on my top five. So be careful, sir. <laughs> Maybe I'm just pushing you to make bad decisions. I'm sabotaging well, you, Josh. I know how your brain works. <laughs> the fact that Michael is going to be joining us next week means that, like us, he apparently isn't soaking up the sun on the coast of France at the Cannes Film Festival. The 76th edition of the fest opened on the 16th. It runs through the 27th. And we've got a Cannes-related film spotting poll question we posed to you last week. Which Cannes 2023 competition film that isn't Wes Anderson's Asteroid City are you most excited for? And we are emphasizing competition as there are some high-profile films playing out of competition at the fest, including, you know, the new one finally from Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. Here are the options we're giving you. These are all competing for this year's Palme d'Or about dry grasses. That's from Turkish filmmaker Nuri Bilga Jalan. Fallen Leaves comes from Finland's Aki Kurismaki. La Chimera is coming from Alice Rohrwacher. May December from Todd Haynes. Monster from Horikazu Koreeda. Wim Wenders' Perfect Days and Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest. We'll offer you the other option as well. You can vote in that poll right now. Also, please do leave us a comment at filmspotting.net. And if you have a pick for favorite film of the year, maybe a title you haven't heard us discuss on the show, send us a note or an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net, or let us know on social. Adam's at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they're continuing their new pairing, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, and Todd Solans. Welcome to the Dollhouse. Such an inspired pairing. Looking at cinema's present via its past, the next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. The first image he told me about was of three children on a road in Iceland, 
1965. He said that for him it was the image of happiness and also that he had tried several times to link it to other images, but it never worked. He wrote me, one day I'll have to put it all alone at the beginning of a film with a long piece of black leader. If they don't see happiness in the picture, at least they'll see the black. That's from the opening of Chris Marker's Sans Soleil, the fifth movie in our Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon. For this marathon, we chose six films from the 2022 Sight and Sound Critics List, all blind spots for us. And so far, fair to say, Josh, one of the more rewarding marathons. How about these titles so far? Yeah, I mean, when you circle perceived masterpieces for the entire marathon, you're going to get some good ones. But we started with Kenji Mizuguchi's Sancho the Bailiff. That's from 1954. Went on to Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life from 59. Then it was Rainer Werner Fassbender's Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. That came out in 1974. And last week, nothing less than Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror from 1975. Yeah, we went in chronological order there, and in some respects, we've also gone in degree of difficulty, unknown to us, but that's the way it has gone so far. We started with more or less straightforward narratives, though all were dense thematically, and then with these last two, we have plunged headlong into abstraction. With Tarkovsky's Mirror, Josh, you noted during our conversation that at some point you decided to stop treating the movie as a puzzle and you just immersed yourself in the movie's aesthetics. Marker's Sans Soleil, which came in at number 59 on the Sight & Sound Top 100, requires some of that same letting go. Yeah, including, maybe we'll get into this, letting go, how to define it. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's categorized as a documentary. often shows up on lists of the best nonfiction films ever made, but... Probably more accurate to call it an essay film. Uh, it features a narrator who is sharing reflections on time and memory over images of people, of animal, of landscapes from all over the world. Some of these shot by Marker himself, but it also employs stock and TV footage. Marker himself once called it a home movie. Yeah, that narrator is an unnamed woman. She's reading and responding to letters from a cameraman who's named Sander Krasna. Krasna is just one of the fictitious personas that Marker created for the movie. And we haven't really talked about Marker on this show, but he was someone who emerged as part of the French new wave of filmmakers in the 50s and 60s, but not so much with right bank luminaries like Godard and Truffaut, more with left bank weirdos like Agnes Varda and Alain René. He has dozens of film credits, many of them shorts and documentaries, probably best known for this film and his 1962 short La Jate that came in at number 67 on the sight and sound list. La Jate is a 28 minute sci-fi film made up entirely of still images. You can definitely see how these two movies are connected. And even that film would probably be less well-known if Terry Gilliam hadn't adapted it into his 1995 film, 12 monkeys watching Sans Soleil, Josh, did it make you more or less curious about seeing more of Marker's work? It made me more curious about seeing Sans Soleil again. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get that. I mean, this this is one, and as we just outlaid, you know, we're challenging ourselves with, uh, as experienced cinephiles, as we like to consider, mm. we're, consider ourselves, we are challenging ourselves with some of these titles. And I think it's okay to say in the, in the parlance of Letterboxd, I had a three and a half out of five star experience with this film and see the potential for a five out of five star at some point. So, you know, I'd, I'd hate for this discussion to be a, you, you just don't understand the genius of Sansole. 
give me time. <laughs> Let me get there because this was a lot to whack through. And it's not just that why maybe I would say I have uh, had less of an experience than others have had with the movie. I think some of the things that I appreciated about similar films, documentary style essays, visual essays, I didn't see here as much. A lot of it had to do with the aesthetics for me. But in terms of the ideas, man, it was just shoveling stuff on top of me that was endlessly fascinating, intriguing. There are sections about specific cultures, political histories, Mm -hmm. and I'm just starting to catch up with it. And boom, we're off to something else. So then you're thinking about, well, what's being presented to me now? And okay, I think I've got my head around this. Here's how it might connect with what we just saw. That's interesting. And not only in terms of narrative or not narrative, but in terms of um, effects and ideas and themes, I see some connections. Now, how might they be connecting in terms of visuals? How is the editing? And then boom, we're off to something else. And so I'm just going to fess up. This thing was a lot Mm -hmm. and um, completely understand how someone with more time given to it or more context bringing into it might immediately out of the gate say, yeah, masterpiece, top 100, no brainer. I just hope I can get there. Definitely appreciated it. And we'll probably get into some of the details that did stand out to me and make it a worthy candidate in this marathon. But that's where I'm at now. It's just the truth. I get it. Even if. I think I had more of the experience you were hoping for. And what you're describing in terms of its pace for something that is so poetic, it is really brisk. The narration doesn't really cease. It's not like it takes a lot of time to just build up certain imagery. We are always getting that commentary in a way that feels almost train of thought like it's it's happening as if the the speaker can't help but get these thoughts out but then we also know that that's not what's happening that there's this whole conceit and the artifice of what we're hearing but we mentioned this what a great follow up to mir especially when the movie directly invokes tarkovsky and talk of the zone the zone related to stalker right josh right. not not related to mirror but we couldn't have known that connection was there and yet there it is One of the things we did get into with Mir is how poetic and how logic-defying that movie was, but how satisfying it was emotionally and what it seemed to reveal about Tarkovsky himself mining his own past, and he's recreating his own past and Russia's past as well. Sans Soleil is similarly poetic and personal, except that Marker isn't recreating what was real. He's capturing and transforming what is real? One's technically fiction. The other is technically nonfiction. Both feel like they represent really potently the filmmaker's gaze, though. And with Sans Soleil, it, it's part history lesson, part home movie travelogue, and a wholly thrilling, anxiety-inducing <laughs> chronicle of human disconnection. I was in a constant state of unease watching this movie. And I say that as a compliment, that it that it had that effect on me. And it's because I think of all of those disconnects, start with the form itself. You have a narrator who isn't the same person who provided the footage because the narrator is mostly reporting, sometimes commenting on what the camera person wrote. That's one disconnect. We come to learn that the camera person has a name, 
which isn't the same as Chris Marker, even though we can correctly infer that he is actually Chris Marker. Another disconnect. There's sound throughout music, effects, voices, but nothing that's synchronized. So the imagery and the audio are never directly aligned. That's another disconnect. You add all these things up. And then I think even adding to the unease is that so much of the movie does also chronicle connection or the possibility for connection. How many times does Marker juxtapose people and places and similar actions and movements and rhythms across continents? All of these commonalities, sometimes they seem like copies. They couldn't be, but they seem like they are. And I found myself, because of all of that, sort of swirling with this film, but swirling in a way that I did think was worth the journey. I spent the day in front of my TV set, that memory box. I was in Nara with the sacred deers. I was taking a picture without knowing that in the 15th century, Basho had written, the willow sees the heron's image upside down. The commercial becomes a kind of haiku to the eye, used to Western atrocities in this field. Not understanding obviously adds to the pleasure. For one slightly hallucinatory moment, I had the impression that I spoke Japanese, but it was a cultural program on NHK about Gérard de Nerval. Yeah, Swirling captures it really well, I think. And there are two things in particular that this film is interested in and that Mir is as well. You touched on them. Memory, right? And and history mm-hmm. and how those interact with each other personally yes we're seeing mirror through the filter of tarkovsky's fictional characters even though some of it is based on his own childhood just as we're seeing here in sansoleil these travels and the images filtered through this fictional documentary filmmaker rather than marker so definitely some points of comparison i think sansoleil is also taking on culture and art in a way that was present in mirror but not as predominant mm-hmm. as it is here that's part of the travelogue element and i think for me that's that's a question on my revisit that i do want to dig into and actually i'd love to hear like you know what a Japanese cinephile makes of this because we spend so much time in Japan and partly I was wondering, you know, he, he is using these images of Japanese cultural practices, whether it's some of the temples he visits or the shopping places he visits, there are dance performances that he captures that, as I said, is then filtered through this fictional filmmaker who is making observations about this culture to this letter to our fictional narrator. Mm -hmm. So this is not, maybe this is a protective layer marker purposely put in place. Cause one of my questions is, you know, as it's descriptive, this film of Japanese culture, let's just say there are other cultures that are explored as well as it's descriptive. I think it's interesting as it's, I don't know if prescriptive is exactly the right word, but as it's being used to define or make assumptions about Japanese society or come to conclusions about, well, this is how the Japanese think, or this is how the Japanese operate. It's just something I wondered, you know, an outsider bringing that or laying that on top of the culture, what someone from the culture might think about that. And you can say, you know, about the African men and women featured here too. I'm not making any sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, 
politically incorrect charges here. I'm just curious about that question now that I don't quite, this is one of those context things I don't have, but it, it was something that was raised as I watched it this time. And then the other thing that, you know, you mentioned and described, well, the swirling experience. And that's what I was trying to get at when I was jumping from, we get this, we get this, we get that. I want to go back and just match. I almost want to watch it without sound because I want to do the matching of the chosen footage. As you said, the ways they mirror different Mm -hmm. cultures. It's definitely interested in the universality that underlies all cultures. But other things, like I'm thinking of something like Kirsten Johnson's camera person, where part of the brilliance of that movie was how all of this extraneous footage she had gathered from her own documentary career as a cinematographer, how she pieced it together to find meaning in the juxtapositions, in the comparisons, in the order, in the editing. And it was probably cultural why I was able to latch onto those associations more immediately with camera person than I was here because I thoroughly believe they're there. There are instances, as you described, where I did recognize it. But in the moment to me, this was more of that rush. It was more of that swirl visually. I'm just talking about visually where I want to go back and appreciate where there may be more pairing or mirroring or juxtaposing of the actual images on the screen which is something I think I might have, if I'd seen more of that, I might have appreciated a little bit more. Hmm. I do love that you mentioned Kirsten Johnson. And at this point in doing film spotting together, it's just probably been enough years and we've talked about enough of the same movies here on the show that we're going to have some similar touchstones when we're watching films. And I also wrote Kirsten Johnson down in my notes and I didn't have time to Google it. Maybe I also didn't want to spoil this, but Watching Sans Soleil, I thought to myself, there has to be an interview out there, video or written, with Kirsten Johnson talking about the influence of Sans Soleil on her work. There just has to be. And that's easy to say, probably, because a lot of documentary filmmakers probably reference this film as an inspiration. But specifically based on camera person in particular, and you think about a filmmaker who is obsessed with, and I'll use the parlance of marker here, obsessed with the magical eye, the magical eye of the camera and its ability to capture what he also calls in the film banality, capture every day and everyday activities of everyday people. It really did make me think a lot of Johnson and her work. So that's something I'd love to do a little bit more research on. I'll go back to one thing you said about the culture and how people of that culture might respond to it. One of the tricks here, of course, I think, is that the letter-writing conceit and that voiceover, that that construct gives Marker some license to be a little freewheeling and to express yes. these thoughts, right? Because it's so clearly through his own personal lens and sense of the world and how he is experiencing these moments. He does bring in this historical aspect too often, but even as authoritative as he sounds many times throughout this film, there's also a sense that he's he's reaching. He's reaching for meaning. He's looking for meaning and connection. So I do think that that gives him some free reign, but mm-hmm. especially late in the film, there's a sequence where the camera is just cutting between different faces on a train in Tokyo, presumably. We see all these different Japanese faces. Most of them are asleep. And the way he 
intercuts those faces mm-hmm. with the imagery from Japanese horror on TV makes them all seem like zombies. And that also made me uneasy watching it a little bit. I think that 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 at least kind of gets at what you're suggesting. He, he yeah, yeah, yeah. He others the the people that he is capturing with his camera. Or what conclusions? You know, it's it's just like what conclusions are are being drawn there by those juxtapositions. Mm-hmm. Um, is is kind of the question I'm wondered. I don't know the answer. I'm not saying it's necessarily negative, but as someone observing as a travelogue, right? As someone mm-hmm. coming from another culture observing one, it, it's it's a question worth asking. I think. Yeah, it is, and I think one of the reasons I was able to latch on to this film perhaps a little bit more than you and was more taken with the imagery is because of the discussion or the invocation of this idea of the magical eye, the magical eye of the camera being at the center of a lot of this film. And he, he directly says that he literally says that, but it is so much about seeing and trying to subvert or change your expectations or understanding of the thing you're seeing. And that comes about in a way, in one instance, that I love how the narration and the imagery matches. It's these billboards, these Japanese billboards, and the people walking by them. And he describes the billboards as voyeurizing the voyeurs. And just think, well, I love the turn of phrase, but just, mm-hmm. and there are many great turns of phrase. Yeah, there's some film. wonderful poetry in the there narration. There really is. But that's another thing. You said you'd love to watch it without sound. I would too. I'd also love to watch it without imagery and just listen to it. Yeah. You could yeah, go sure. both ways with this film because Definitely. the writing is so fascinating and poetic. But just thinking about it in those terms, switching the idea of the gaze and and who's in control is something that adds to that unease a little bit as a viewer. And he does it again when he talks about the characters on Japanese television and he shows those close-ups where they're all breaking the fourth wall and they're looking back at you as if Japanese TV is watching you, not you watching TV. He also has a Kirsten Johnson-like moment that's all about seeing and who's doing the seeing when he shows an African woman, a young woman, and he talks through or the narrator talks through almost in real time what we're seeing on screen, which is that that dance documentarians and subjects do sometimes where the subject knows they're being watched, but they're acting like they're not being watched because they know that's what they're supposed to do. But then there's something maybe a little bit artificial about it. And, oh, there's a moment where we see the eyes actually do glance at the camera. Those were the types of moments and that conversation around how you see the world and how the camera as a tool forces you to see things differently. That's where I got the most enjoyment out of this film. And I know this is a line that you loved as well, Josh, so I won't spoil it here too much, but maybe the most poetic line in the film and another great moment of the imagery and the voiceover matching is the shot we get of the the willow and, and a heron oh, yeah. in the water. And yeah. that's another thing that just literally flips on its head. What is, what is happening or the dynamic of those images? 
Well, and then shifting from dissolving from an actual shot of a heron in a willow tree mm-hmm. to a painting of it that's yes. that's flipped. And yeah, there's some gorgeous stuff there. And, I, and I'm glad you mentioned that um, I, because I do know it's one we both appreciate. But also, as I get into this other point I want to make, you know, there is some visual beauty or intrigue. doesn't always mm-hmm. have to be beautiful. Visual intrigue in this film, absolutely. I think of another shot of a woman who is in a line. It looks like there may be bricklayers. They're tossing bricks. One man tosses it to her. She tosses it to another guy, and she's in the middle of the screen. There's just something about the rhythm mm-hmm. where the sun, I believe it's the sun, it might even be the moon during the day is in the sky. And so there are arresting images like that. I was hoping for more of them, I think, to carry me through this, to give me some some visual information along with all of the narrative information. And this is what also brought to mind another movie that I know came to mind for yes. you as well. Um, again, because of what we've, the, the films we've looked at together on the show, but Chantal Ackerman's News from Home. Now, mm-hmm. this might be one. You mentioned how camera person maybe was influenced by Sans Soleil. You have to wonder, you know, News from Home is to. 1976, right? So mm-hmm. did did Ackerman influence uh, Marker here in some way? Because in that documentary, we see footage of mostly nighttime scenes in New York City where she has moved while she reads letters from her mother, kind of, you know, passive aggressively trying to wooing her back mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to leave the United States. And one of the things I was wowed about was the visual ingenuity Ackerman found in these mundane images of nighttime at New York City. I, I I think of, you know, just one of an of a pizza baker outside, looking inside at him from outside, and how reflections from other neon signs have kind of imprinted these red letters on on his head. I, I talked when we reviewed it about that scene on the subway where it's just a long, almost documentary slow cinema of just a fixed shot as we go from station to station. But there's a woman standing there and how her image, we see her reflection in the window of the subway car and then we go through a tunnel and it's gone. Is she going to come back? Is she not? And how that transfixed me. I am sure there are more moments like that in Sans Soleil that I missed because I was trying to keep up or I missed because I didn't have the cultural, you know, I'm more culturally comfortable with a movie set in New York City, right? An English language documentary. So I'm sure there are other examples we could think of, but that was one reason. It's just interesting to me, like news from home, equally as dense, I would say in different ways, but struck me as a masterpiece right out of the gate. Whereas Sans Soleil, as I've, as I've suggested, I'm, I'm still struggling with a little bit. Yeah, I definitely did think about News from Home and Ackerman as well. And I think I made the mistake initially in my mind of assuming that Sans Soleil must have been first and inspired News from Home. And that's because of its reputation, but also I think because of its scale. News from Home is so much more intimate than this film. Not that it's any less ambitious, but of course it was 1976 and this was 83. And you have to assume that it was an influence. I would say that if you're putting together an art house drive-in double feature around Sans Soleil, the movie you have to pair it with, you could think about a Kirsten Johnson film, definitely camera person would come to mind, but it really does have to be news from home. And I even went back and looked at our notes, looked at my notes from our conversation, did not anticipate this, but the second line of my notes about the Ackerman film is just the word disconnection. 
So I very much was feeling the same thing and thought the filmmakers were exploring a lot mm. of the same mm -hmm. ideas watching both films. Sansoleil is currently streaming on the Criterion channel and it's available VOD for the full sight and sound marathon lineup. And to hear all of our past discussions, you can go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, I think we've done or tried to do enough heavy lifting on this show between the new Schrader and the old marker. We are now trying to move on to more frivolous matters. Maybe you'll watch some NBA playoffs. <laughs> I'd love to do that. I mean, you know, you put it that way, though. I think we really should have lightened things up with Fast X, but oh, well. Another time, another show. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us considering the 76th edition of the Cannes Film Festival, which opened this week. We want to know which film playing in competition are you most looking forward to. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. You also get Sam's weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. Our May bonus is going to be with guest Brett Merriman. Brett's the winner of the Film Spotting Family Madness Bracket Challenge. And you've been talking to Brett, Adam, about options. Yeah. Are we, we're not are we settled. settled? We're not. No? No, we're not totally settled. It is going to be a draft, a four-person okay. draft. That does mean <laughs> the return of the snake draft, Josh. No, no. There's got to be, I mean, with four people, don't you pull out like a, I don't know, like a hippo? Isn't there a hippo draft <laughs> maybe. you use? Or maybe we can invent that for this draft. We might look back at 2008, do kind of a 15th anniversary Draft okay. a year from obviously film spotting's history. Brett's been a listener since the beginning in 2005. If you want to hear that monthly bonus show, yes, please become a member of the film spotting family. You also can choose to have access to the film spotting archive, the complete archive of shows on whatever device and whatever platform you listen on. Bill McLaughlin and his film spotting guide to the archives on Letterboxd was a good resource for us again this week. We'll include that as always in our show notes. Talking a lot about Schrader, talking about First Reform, some episodes you might check out in the archive. Episode 682, our interview with Paul Schrader from May 2018. That was a fun one. 696, our top five Ethan Hawke moments from September 2018. Talked a little First Reform there. Episode 711, we did our top 10 films of 2018. Yeah, First Reform made both of our lists. And there are others. I'll jump ahead to one more recent one, 885, when we did a draft. Our A24 10th anniversary draft. Did you end up getting first reformed on your list, Josh? I think you did. Um, it sounds right, but you know, after Lady Bird, I just kind of checked out. So. How dare you? Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can learn everything you need to know about becoming a member of the Film Spotting family. One other quick hit from the archive. Since we were talking news from home, we talked about that Chantel Ackerman film as part of our 7 from 76 series. That was May 2021, episode 824. Talked about some other bigger titles or more popular titles from 1976 as well. Network, All the President's Men, Rocky, Speaking of Schrader. Talked about Taxi Driver as well. Yeah, that was a good part one. part of that series. Streaming this week, you can see Cinqua Walls and Jack Harlow, if you want to. White Men Can't Jump, that's playing on Hulu. In wide release, yes, Fast X slash Fast 10. In limited release, 
The Eight Mountains, a movie I caught up with and I'm glad I did. It's from the team behind 2012's Broken Circle Breakdown. Very good Italian set film. La Immensita is also out. That's a 70s set drama with Penelope Cruz. I'm curious about this one, but not sure if I'm going to be able to see it before our show next week, Josh. The new one with Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley. She is a dominatrix. He is a hotel empire heir confined in a hotel room with her. That film is called Sanctuary. And of course, you can see the third film, supposedly the final film in Schrader's Man in a Room trilogy, Master Gardener. Next week, though, we'll share our top five films of 2023 so far. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune will be by. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.